Hello and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, editor-at-large for LARB, and I'm joined remotely today by my co-host, LARB's managing editor, Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. And today we're speaking with Yian Lianka, who is an author from China, very, very, very well-respected there and becoming more known here in the U.S. as well. That's right. Yeah, he, he's the author of, of many books. He's probably most notorious for a novel called Serve the People, which was banned in China. And that is because it depicts a sexual affair where the sexual arousal in the book is um, smashing the statues of Mao and burning communist literature. So I, I can see why the Communist Party in China didn't love it. Um, <laughs> But so he's, he's published many books since then and, and many novels that have largely been censored in China. And we got an opportunity to talk to him because one of our summer interns actually contacted him and reached him and reached him in China and could translate. And so we had the, the pleasure of speaking with him. He's in Beijing and he spoke to us from his home and Nicole provided a translation for us. So it was, it was kind of a special interview. Yeah, Nicole Liu, who is our amazing intern, she did a great job here. And translating on the on the sly quickly as someone is speaking seems very difficult. And um, she did wonderfully. So, yeah, and we discussed with Yan his novels, his writing, his family, but also what he hopes for the future of China and the political situation there. Let's listen. Let's do it. Yen Lienka on the line with us today. Yen Lienka is a renowned Chinese writer, and he's joining us from Beijing. Yen Lienka was born in the impoverished region of Henan province in 1958. He was born into a family of laborers and farmers, and he enlisted in the army as a young man, where he rose in the ranks to become a propaganda writer. Upon returning to civilian life, Yen embarked on a career as a novelist, starting around the early 90s. Over the last 30 years, he has produced an extensive body of work, that ranges from novels, novellas, and short fiction to essays and criticism. His books include the novels Serve the People, Lenin's Kisses, and The Day the Sun Died. His most recent book is a memoir called Three Brothers, Memoirs of My Family. According to a profile in The New Yorker, since 2016, almost all of Yen's work, to date 17 novels, as well as short stories, novellas, and volumes of essays, have been subject to an unofficial ban in China. He was prohibited from traveling for three years, but despite that, Yen continues to speak honestly about the impact of government censorship and self-censorship on contemporary Chinese writers. He has taught classes as a literature professor in Renmin University since 2008. In 2006, Yen was appointed visiting professor of Chinese culture by the Hong Kong University of Science Technology. Among many accolades, he was awarded the Franz Kafka Prize. He was twice a finalist for the Man Booker International Prize, he has been shortlisted for the Independent Foreign Fiction Prize, the Man Asian Literary Prize, and the Prix Femina Etranger. He has received two of China's most prestigious literary honors, the Lu Xun Prize and the Lao Shi Award. Thank you so much, Professor Yan, for joining us. I wanted to start by talking just about what life has been like in Beijing and in China in general since the coronavirus started. How has your daily life changed? at all? And how do you think 
the country is dealing with the crisis. 好的，我想大体上的情况就是新冠状病毒之后呢，呃，人们的紧张和不安。After the coronavirus, in general, it has changed people's way of life significantly. People's lives are full with nervousness, and people feel unsettled. In general, the Chinese government's response is a positive one, but right now, people constantly worry and talk about the coronavirus, especially with news from foreign countries filtering in. People are constantly aware of it. Secondly, another important thing that has changed for people post coronavirus in China is the idea of food. So, food has always been very important to ordinary people, and right now, a lot of prices in restaurants and just food prices in general has been increasing. So, people are really worried that maybe there will be a food crisis somewhere down the line. It's Not very predictable. The third point that he says that people are worried about right now is the employment crisis due to the coronavirus situation. A lot of people from rural backgrounds who are trying to seek employment in cities are forced to go back to the countryside. And right now, a lot of these rural workers don't really know what is going to happen to them. So that sort of employment uncertainty is another thing that ordinary Chinese people are really, really concerned about. And you grew up at a time in China where food was also very uncertain. During the Cultural Revolution in the village where you lived, food was very scarce. And you write very beautifully about being hungry and having to watch as people from the city would come and be fed by your family while you were burning with hunger. Uh, I think Chinese people are very sensitive to food. So Chinese people are especially sensitive to the question of food, especially post 1949. There are all these government plans and all these historic events, such as the three-year famine. The specific amount of people who died as a result of those crises is still unspecified, but everybody who has gone through it knows that it's. Uncalculable. So everyone who is over sixty knows of it, and everyone who is above seventy probably has experienced it. So for ordinary Chinese people, the question of food is probably more important than the question of politics, oppression of diplomacy, the question of war. So in recent years, but earlier, there are these conversations about returning unused farmland and returning them back to become natural conservations. Making them back into forests again, and that was something that people were very resistant against. So, more recent increased conversations are more focused on converting unused forests into farmland instead. Also, President Xi of China has this slogan about how people should not waste food on the dinner table. So, back a couple of years when the slogans first came out, it is sort of more like a general. Thing that people can talk about, but in this specific moment, people are very sensitive to that there may be bigger implications to the emphasis of such a slogan. And what about your own experience of hunger when you were growing up? I think, uh, I in my childhood, the hunger impact was very strong. For him, his most intense memory of hunger is when he was five or six years old, and his mother took him to the fields and pointed at the yellow soil and said, "This soil is what Chinese people would colloquially call, I think, Buddha Vista soil, a life-saving soil, because it can be ingested." 
And also his mother, in an act of giving practical wisdom, also told him what wild vegetables could be eaten and what tree barks can be eaten. In the north, there are these trees, the Chinese elm trees. Those, the tree barks can be ingested. So for him, the experience of hunger is intertwined with these practical lessons of his mother painstakingly trying to teach him ways to survive. So for him, also the biggest achievement of the Chinese government in these past 30 or 40 years in terms of the economic reform is that people have things to eat and no longer need to starve. People have places to live. So these things are to him more important than the big skyscrapers and the big architectural projects that the cities have been able to bring about. Along those lines, I mean, so much dramatically has changed, Yen, like, not only for yourself, but also for China as a whole over the period of your life and your career as a writer. So can you also talk a little bit about your experience as a child and like how you see the distance between that time and contemporary China? China of his youth, there are two things that really stood out to him. One is hunger, the other is revolution. With the 10 years of the Cultural Revolution, every citizen from peasant to people who live in the cities, they wage revolution while being hungry. So for the youths of China nowadays, they have no experience nor conception of what hunger really means. People who are born in the 80s and the 90s, they do not understand, nor do they believe that the three-year famine or the Cultural Revolution, which have killed, I guess, maybe 20 million, 30 million people in China, they do not believe that that has happened. And their responses to it would be, that's a rumor, you are anti-revolution, you are slandering the country and slandering the CCP. So the most important issue, the most urgent issue to him about the youths nowadays is that the youths no longer know what China's yesterdays look like. And for people who are 40 and 50 years old, that's really terrifying because people are forgetting history. He thinks that the youths of nowadays want a new kind of revolution, having not known what revolution meant in China. And that was alarming to him. For China nowadays, no matter foreign policy or policy in general or commerce, the most important question is whether or not China's future will continue to open up and continue to connect with the rest of the world, or will it connect itself from the rest of the world? Is it going to open up or is it going back into isolation? So speaking about the revolution, I wanted to ask about Yen's experience of the revolution and how it changed once he also began to read and write and became a part of the culture in China and became involved in it and knew more about it. Any country at any time period to focus most of its energy upon revolution will not bring a good result. It will only be catastrophic. There will be no good that comes out of it, which is a lesson that China has spent 30 years to learn and only ended during the Chinese economic reform in the 80s. So it is only by putting revolution to a secondary place and to prioritize economic reforms that 
ordinary people's lives could be afforded more warmth and their general quality of life could have increased the way it is. So right now when the youths are focusing on maybe bringing about a new wave of revolution, they're going to times that precede the 80s, times before the economic reform, the time of Chairman Mao, and they do not understand what that means. So saying goodbye to revolution is a very important thing for Chinese people going forward. And to him, right now when he's thinking about literature and his own writing and about the amount of influence he is able to have on the current literary and cultural scene in China, he thinks life and he thinks that the most beautiful thing that has happened to him is that he has experienced the 20 or 30 year time period from the 80s Chinese economic reform to now, because without that opening up economically and culturally of China, not only for him, but for all artists and writers in general, it would have been a tragedy. His good fortune in life is that he is able to experience the economic reform And his tragedy, he likes to joke, is that he has experienced cultural revolution in his youth. He experienced this brilliant part of economic reform and the opening up. But right now, when he looks at China's future, it may regress back to the darkness of his youth. So on the time period of economic reform, he especially appreciates it because that is a time when any kind of literature, any kind of art is permissible. Anyone can experiment with anything. So... Right now, as he stares down at the uncertain future of China, he thinks that he's over 60 years old. He wants to write as freely as possible. And because for a writer, if he loses the liberty to write whatever he wants, he loses the meaning of writing itself. You are listening to the LARP Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Yian Lianka, author most recently of Three Brothers, Memories of My Family. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. We have Nicole Liu on the line with us today. Nicole is a former LARB intern, greatly beloved because she was just an excellent, excellent intern. And she is a senior at Swarthmore College. She is majoring in English and minoring in Chinese. She's originally from Hong Kong, but currently lives in Boston. And she claims that she dreams in three languages, sometimes in four, where we can't corroborate that, can't authenticate it. We're just going to take her word for it. Nicole is on the line to give us a book recommendation. Nicole, what book are you going to recommend? I would like to recommend Book of Poetry by Mary Jean Chan. And it's called Flesh, but it's spelled F-L-E-C-H-E with the middle E. Um, that has a great accent. So it's a fencing term, which Google tells me means a method of attacking in fencing. Interesting. Yeah. So this book of poetry is published in 2019 by Faber and Faber on my birthday. <laughs> like a birthday gift. Yes. Um, and it's a significant date, not because I was born, but because it's a day after the Hong Kong Special Administrative uh, Region Establishment Day. Um, Hong Mm -hmm. Kong is my hometown, and it's also where the poet Mary Jean Chan was born. So there's a lot of overlapping themes uh, between, like, what I see as, like, the presentation of her life and her language atmosphere and my own. Oh, interesting. Wait, can you tell us more about that? Like, what what do you mean, the sort of overlapping language atmospheres? Well, actually, in the preface of the book, the poet writes to a British audience, 
There are many reasons for my writing in your language, ask your government, ask mine. But later she talks about a conversation between herself and her mother and also like some some sort of language practices she has at her home where she says mm. um, how I type Shakespeare, then homoeroticism plus Shakespeare into Google over and over. My mother did not understand the difference between English words, so she let me be. So in this way, like English as a colonial language of Hong Kong is sort of both a lang- her major creative language, but also, you know, with this sort of painful history attached to it. I think in that way, language both liberates her and binds her. So like I grew up in Hong Kong. I came to school in America, there's a lot of overlapping like sense of multilingualism going on in my life. And to see a poet wrestle her way to create beauty out of something that is painful, but um, to create beauty out of choice, but also sometimes not out of choice, out of avoidance and escape, right? Mm-hmm. All of these sort of multifaceted themes of language really uh, defines this book and also really fascinates me. How did you discover this book? Um, (laughs) Speaking of overlapping themes, she used to be a student of my favorite professor (laughs) at Swarthmore. So she also graduated a couple of years from Swarthmore um, before I came in as an undergrad. So, (laughs) Oh, interesting. Have you ever considered getting in touch with her and sort of discussing the things that you've found in her book and that you are so interested in? No, I would hope that one day maybe, (laughs) but... Yeah, right now it's just, the thing is this book, it deals with so many things. Her childhood, it's like written so lovingly, but also so critically. The way like, you know, queerness is stigmatized in our home environment, Mm -hmm. larger um, cultural environment in Hong Kong. It's like, it's a very short, but intensely intimate book. So, and I feel like right now, like as I first read it, and then as I am rereading it for this book recommendation, it really kind of covers so many different aspects of this person. I don't want to be really cliche in saying it's almost as if I'm knowing her, but it's definitely sort of achieves that sense of like connection. Um, Mm. Yeah. As you know, as a book about someone's life. And maybe for people who are lacking a feeling of connection to also what's happening in Hong Kong right now, this would be a potential kind of gateway to a person who, who grew up there, who knows, who knows it and is intimate with it. I think it's strange because like the way Hong Kong is being covered in the current, uh, I guess, American news cycle, it Mm -hmm. really highlights the conflict, highlights the violence, highlights the struggle, or maybe like the hope or the lack of hope with regards to the struggle. So like there's so very few opportunities to see like, you know, just a young woman coming into being in that that very specific aesthetically visually aesthetically distinct landscape Mm. and I think the images she paints in here really captures like you know a rhythm of life of what's going on also it's strange because she incorporates a lot of Chinese words in a way that is specifically aimed toward an English-speaking audience and that is in itself a sort of reflection of the language cultural sphere of Hong Kong as well, where Hong Kong brand of Cantonese is famous for weaving all these English words seamlessly into the sort of very snappy rhythms of the sort of cantal, casual canto lingo. So, and in that way, like it also kind of captures the rhythm of the city. Wow, that sounds fantastic. Nicole, will you tell us the title of the book again and the author? All right, the title of the book is Flesh. And the author is Mary Jean Chan. Great.
Thank you so much. We've been talking to Nicole Liu, a beloved former intern of the Los Angeles Review Book. You are listening to the Large Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Ian Lienka. This leads me into a question that, you know, I've, I've been wanting to ask you, and I think it is a sensitive one, but how censorship kind of has impacted you as a writer and the kind of cultural impact that that has had. You know, it, in essence, what does it mean to be a writer who is writing to your own people about a history that they are losing access to, and yet not to have that work be available to them, but rather to the rest of the world in translation? Thinks that as a writer, not being able to publish his work in his mother tongue is a deeply regrettable thing. But to him, the most important thing is to write the truth in his own heart, and that is to him the chief most important thing. He's often heard stories about. Writers from older generations in China who are in the hospital, who are on their deathbeds, and their only regret is that they are not able to write their best work just yet. So he does not want himself to be in a place where he's on his own deathbed. But his own regret is that he hasn't been able to write his masterwork. So although he deeply wants his work to be published in China. Right now, he's kind of used to the censorship. Even if there is no publication, it is okay. The most important thing is that he puts out his most artistic, most imaginative work as much as he can. So he does believe that as long as he writes his work, one day maybe his work will return to its motherland, have a homecoming in its in his mother language. As to censorship, bans from publication. Those are habitual things to him now. As long as he can write in his own library, he is satisfied. In in countries often with political oppression, it, it seems that many writers, great writers in Latin America, in you know the Eastern Bloc, take on describing events through parable and through metaphor and through a kind of、um, surrealist. Portrait of reality that is probably no stranger in some sense than the reality that they live in, and that is the mode of many of your novels. And I was wondering about the difference in in having written a memoir where you were writing what actually happened,、uh, how that experience was for you, and how the reality contrasted with the more fantastic elements of your fiction. 我想我的写作可以，呃，当然一种是我们所谓的虚构的小说。When he writes fiction, it's more imaginative, it's freer, it's crueler than real life. He is able, through fictional lenses, to access a truth that real life cannot access. There's a truth that is truer than what is presentable in real life for him when he's writing fictional accounts. Whereas、uh, three brothers, it is his life. It is full of familial warmth and beauty, and it's、um, more concerned with questions of familial relationships. So it is able to be published normally 
and it showcases um, the gentler, warmer, softer side of a writer. So for him, these are two aspects of his writing. The fictional, there's something cold, maybe even cruel, but uh, sort of a resoluteness towards accessing a truth that is not otherwise accessible in reality. But uh, his nonfiction, he could showcase the more traditional, uh, warmer, softer sides um, that of his experiences that he has lived through. So it is to him a part of the diversity and the multifacetedness of a writer. So in addition to Three Brothers, which was um, written about a decade ago, um, during the coronavirus, he also wrote a book called Them, but it's, uh, it's in Chinese, the them is gendered. So it's a female them, or I guess maybe her would be another way of, the book is focused on the women of his family. He is also able to publish that normally. And uh, recent conversations about it is more focused on the feminism uh, aspects of the book. But it is indeed written um, from more from the female perspective, how the women of his life has lived, how they see the land, um, what hopes, dreams, marriages, romances that has happened to them. So that book has sold really well right now. I think um, it is on its fourth and fifth edition. And I think it has sold like 100,000 copies already um, since its publishing. Well, right now, Professor Yin has written over 50 books, but Three Brothers and them are the probably the only books you can find on the Chinese market that he has written. So maybe to, to close, I wanted to ask uh, Yan what his hopes, uh, you know, you're talking about the hopes and dreams of his, of the women and his family, but what his hopes and dreams are for China and for Hong Kong and the region for the future. How does he envision the future of his own country and um, the political changes or the economic changes that might ensue in the coming years? But what does he hope for? Professor Yan's biggest hope for China is that China will become a part of the global family and not be kicked out from that family due to, of course, the historical reasons of the last century. As we all know, there are these two sort of general groups of people. Like you have people who are uniting under the socialism banner and you have, of course, the capitalists um, with reasons that are very complicated and do not need to be delved into in detail. After experiencing two world wars and all these struggles, and almost a, a whole century of struggles, China has finally gotten to a place where it could travel to the side that ha- is more open, that is more democratic. Um, and of course, there are recent behaviors of this China as a member of the global community that may make um, America or Europe feel like they, it has a lot more to do. But um, the important thing is that, you know, 
you don't um, want to make China into an enemy. It has already spent 30 years trying to become a common friend. So people, politicians, whomever, all the wise people, all the many people who are in charge should think about how to help this member improve, how to guide them, whatever you're not satisfied with China's behavior, you should help him help China realize what better things to do, what are, what are places that it could um, improve substantially and uh, further included into the global community uh, as opposed to antagonizing China. He thinks that it's a really foolish behavior to use methods of war, methods of antagonism to uh, further alienate China after this whole century of struggle, to further alienate China from the global community as opposed to help China towards becoming a stronger, more integrated part of the global community. Um, so for him, the biggest hope right now is that China will not be alienated away from the global community, but uh, there are ways for China to be further integrated and included into the global community. So a final remark with regards to the global family, the global community, there are so many ways to solve these problems, but war would be the worst, most foolish way to do it. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. We've been speaking with Ian Lianka, author of Three Brothers, Memories of My Family. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. That will help us get the word out, and we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. The executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broughton. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley-Vlotten. The publisher and editor-in-chief of the LA Review of Books is Tom Lutz.